I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Andrew. And I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we analyse Rishi Sunak's first 100 days as Prime Minister, and you ask us, is Brexit responsible for Britain's economic woes? Today is Rishi Sunak's 100th day as Prime Minister in the same week as Super Strike Day, the biggest day of industrial action in a decade, and Britain being the only G7 economy forecast to shrink by the IMF. So that gives you an idea of the socio-economic picture uh, that Rishi Sunak is facing. But he has a few problems closer to home as well. He's had to sack his party chair, Nadim Zahawi. We spoke about that a bit last week. And there are questions hanging over his deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab. So, Freddie, you wrote about this in Morning Call, didn't you, his first 100 days. Tell us where we are in general and then we'll go into the detail well i think it's gone really badly for rishi sunak to be honest you've got to remember what he was promising when he came in he said he was gonna reinvigorate the tory party he was gonna have a fresh face compared to johnson and trust and he's not been able to do that the problems that sort of brought down trust and johnson he's inherited he's not been able to bring the party together and we're seeing the consequences of that week on week zahawi's the latest one And has he really inherited them? Or does it say something about the wisdom of his choices of the people he put into his cabinet? Certainly, there's only one person who appointed the current cabinet, and that is the current prime minister. You can't get away from that. And he had a difficult choice because bringing the party together does mean including voices and names Mm -hmm. of people who were associated with both Johnson and Truss. He can't completely exclude all of those people because he wouldn't have a parliamentary majority if he did. Nonetheless, he brought Suella Braverman in, he brought Nadim Zahawi in, and he brought Dominic Raab in. Dominic as the number two deputy prime minister. And the latest allegations are about Dominic Raab's allegedly bullying behaviour. And he is clearly, I mean, he's always been a slightly intemperate, impatient man. I think in his defence, he doesn't just punch down, he punches sideways. And when the mood takes him, he punches upwards as well. He's a punchy kind of guy. And I think this is a very, very hard one for Rishi Sunak, because with Nadim Zahawi, it was pretty clear there was a financial issue there about his relationship with HMRC and what he said and didn't say at the time. And it was sort of pretty cut and dried. Nadim Zahawi doesn't think so, but everybody else does. But this time it's a bit harder because, in a sense, he has to judge whether somebody with Dominic Raab's temperament and personality should be allowed to be at the top of politics. Now, Dominic Raab doesn't have a huge bunch of great friends 
hanging around in Westminster, though he's in the tea room a lot making new friends. But I think he would be a dangerous figure to remove from the cabinet and put onto the back benches at this moment. And this is an absolutely classic case of what Freddie was saying about the problems that Rishi Sunak has. You know, he's got to think the whole time about his back benches and his back benches now want radically different things, which is why from time to time he seems a little bit frozen. You know, we complain endlessly that he doesn't have the big vision, the excitement about where he's taking the country. But that is for a very good reason. Yes, because there's not just threats from the people within his cabinet, but also from the back benches as well. Andrew, you've written about the trussies, I think you called them, preparing to go public, admitting their mistakes, you know, and how they rushed their, their policies uh, into being and had that terrible downfall, but insisting the growth policy was actually right. Well, Liz Truss is charging around Westminster with a fixed smile on her face, looking very perky, and she's been talking to right-wing American groups. And, you know, you see people like Kwasi Kwarteng back again talking to people. Now, I'm not saying there is, as it were, a plot to bring back trust economics because those, what Connor Burns told me this week, were the toxic 45 days which nearly destroyed the Tory party is still in recent memory. So that's not going to happen. But I think this idea of a growth agenda and why are we not getting the growth, we'll come on to the IMF report, I'm sure, is something that's being talked about an awful lot. And you can just see the sort of swirlings of unhelpful noise all around Sunak. You've got the the main Eurosceptics gathering together, saying that he absolutely must push the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill through the House of Lords. One of them saying, if he doesn't do that, we should abolish the House of Lords. This is a revolution. I mean, the, the, the language is quite hardcore. And that he must, must, must cut taxes in the March budget. And then you've got other people, plenty of other people, saying that would be absolutely mad. I was just saying, I was talking to Connor Burns, who was Boris Johnson's eyes and ears on Northern Ireland. And Connor Burns told me that if the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill went through, which effectively allows the government to demolish the Northern Ireland Protocol when it wants to, if that went through, then Sinn Féin would not take part in any power-sharing agreement. So if they don't get the bill through, the DUP destroy power-sharing. If they do, Sinn Féin destroys power-sharing. They're in a real bind over this. And that's just one example of the problems that are now beginning to build up. Mm. And Boris Johnson as well, the former Prime Minister, is also (laughs) causing trouble. Yeah, he is. And I think... You know, they had very different tactics in government. Boris Johnson would take lots of risks. He would be very brash about what he wanted to achieve. And Rishi Sunak's support sort of gone the other way. He's been very risk averse, I think. He's said that he wants to manage government as it is. He's adopted five priorities, which are basically just a restatement of the normal duties of government. And I think lots of people were expecting something else to come after that. We sort of thought he would deal with the fallout from the mini budget, try and calm things down, soothe the financial markets, and then we'd get an idea of what Sunakism is. That hasn't come and I don't think it will come. I was speaking to one cabinet minister this week and they're basically saying, no, Rishi Sunak's all about good government. That's what he wants to do in these Mm. last 18 months. And the problem for him, it creates a vacuum. And these right-wing trussies, as Andrew terms them, fill that with calls and clamours for tax cuts. Does that mean there could be a rebellion on the budget then if they don't introduce those tax cuts that they want to have so much earlier than the general election? I'd be surprised if there's a substantial rebellion yet, because I think the memory of the trust period is still very fresh. And I think we are still in the honeymoon period, really, for Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt. There may be a small rebellion and there will certainly be a lot of protests, Mm. but I don't see large numbers of Tories trying to vote down the budget. That would bring a general election and that's not what they want. But I really agree with everything that Freddie said there, because I think historians might look back at Rishi Sunak and say, here was a very intelligent, focused, quite ethically moral guy who came into power 
rather inexperienced as a prime minister, very inexperienced in politics, really, at a time when it was actually objectively impossible to be a successful prime minister. Mm. Yeah, I think the inexperienced point is very interesting. I was speaking to another Tory MP this week, and they were basically highlighting that Sunak hasn't got much political experience. He only came in in 2015. And often, you know, what was Churchill had about 20 years before he finally got into government? You have that time to build up your sort of key issues, your thoughts. All that he had was a pamphlet on free ports, I think it was, which has been written about since the 80s anyway. So he hasn't got that sort of bank of ideas to grasp on as he goes into government. Hence, he's reverted to that managerial way of doing things. I don't think we talk enough about the skills that you need to be a top politician because they are real. It's a very, very difficult job. It's the things that Freddie was talking about in terms of having the bank of ideas, having a philosophy, having a direction. That's absolutely essential. But also the kind of wiliness, the ability to manipulate people around you to get where you want, the ability to hold groups together, even if they don't really agree internally and bring them forward. All those rather sophisticated, you might say slightly sort of shabby people skills that politicians really need. And so far, I don't think Rishi Sunak has. Well, I think it showed that he was lacking that nous and that sort of street smarts when he promised that he'd bring accountability, professionalism and integrity into politics. You know, those people who have been around a long time, like you were saying, Freddie, they know all the skeletons in people's closets. They know the rumours in Westminster and they know when they would be most expedient to come out. You know, he showed his naivety there. I come back again and again to this, this theme of is it possible to be too rich? in politics. Because on the one hand, we've got all the problems that Boris Johnson has got into, you know, cadging loans and trying to accumulate more and more spending money and getting into trouble with that. But then if you're Rishi Sunak and you don't need to do that because you are so hugely rich, are you out of touch with normal experience? And there are journalists around Westminster already ferreting their way into his family finances. Let's just pick up what Freddie was saying about Boris Johnson, because I have to say, I can't turn on any form of social media without Boris bouncing out of it. You know, he's making speeches in Washington. He's giving Sunak advice about sending fighter jets to Ukraine. He's talking about levelling up. He's talking about the vaccine rollout, as Freddie was saying, endlessly. And the big question is... Is he up to something or is this just his natural exuberant exhibitionism? He can't see a camera without gravitating towards it or a microphone without talking into it. And he's feeling a little bit left out and a bit hurt and just wants to remind the world and remind the Conservative Party, I'm still here. Is it any more than that? And I've been going around talking to Tory MPs about this. I can't really detect yet any big surge of enthusiasm for bringing Boris Johnson back inside the Tory party, except for the few people who are completely committed to Boris Johnson, Nadine Doris, who, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, another one of them, has gone off to their own TV shows. So it doesn't suggest they're expecting coming back into cabinet anytime soon. Mm. So I think it's more sort of prodding Rishi Sunak and reminding the Conservative Party that he's here. I think the, the really significant possibility is if the the right of the Conservative Party, as it were led from the House of Lords on this subject by Lord Crudus, managed to get a rule change so that the next chair of the party, after Nadim Zahawi, is actually chosen by the members rather than appointed by the Prime Minister, then we can guess who might be a candidate for that role and come bouncing back onto the centre of the political stage that way. And I wonder if Nadim Zahawi is thinking, is it more in my interest to lure Boris Johnson back as a kind of morale raiser and advocate for the Conservative Party or to keep him out with all the dangers that we've got the, um, the ethics committee investigation about to start after a very long time?
hanging over Johnson is, is always going to be these inquiries. So the, the investigation into what happened with Richard Sharp and the loan and also the Privileges Committee coming up on whether he misled Parliament over Partygate. Does that not sort of tell Tory MPs there's always going to be something hanging over him, even if he's party chairman, which I actually think would be a role that would suit a politician like Johnson? <laughs> you know, it's, it would, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's sort of the fun. attack role. It's a political position. But th- th- with those things <clears throat> hanging over him, would we not just see another party chairman having to resign? Yeah, I think you need lots of things to bring down a prime minister. One of them is that you need an alternative. And when Boris Johnson was in the midst of Partygate, people could look to Rishi Sunak. They could also look to others. But Rishi Sunak was the main one. He was the one that people said he's sufficiently prime ministerial to take on the job. When you look around Rishi Sunak's cabinet or whether you look at Boris Johnson or others, it's hard to find the same person who's got that clean slate, as you say, Anoush. The other thing that you do need is a mechanism. You need the ability within the party to get rid of the prime minister, whether whether that's resignations and the public pressure or whether it's a vote of confidence, whether it's a, a little word from the 1922 chairman. Now, that's why Tory MPs are so important in bringing about change in prime minister. And as Andrew said, there doesn't seem to be that feeling amongst them yet that they want to get rid of Rishi Sunak. They want to give him a chance and they want to shut up a little bit at the moment, I think, and uh, just let things go on. But the key word there was yet. I think Sunak's got such a tricky year ahead of him. We've got the budget, the May elections, the economy is getting worse. There was a poll out last week, I think, and most people think the cost of living crisis is only going to worsen as the year goes forward. So all these things are going to come together his polls are unlikely to improve. And then Tory MPs are going to ask themselves, OK, well, do we just take one more risk or do we take one more chance on Boris Johnson? I think that's unlikely, but I think that's the path. A really good conversation is one where things become clear as the conversation continues. And I think that this is this is one of those because I, I think that's absolutely right. I think the, the only thing I would add to the Rishi Sunak analysis is that the thing that he has to keep talking about to keep the Tory party together is Brexit. And so he has to keep saying benefits of Brexit, benefits of Brexit, benefits of Brexit at the very time when if you look at the country, the country is turning away and doesn't believe in the benefits of Brexit. Unheard of this extraordinary poll of I think 631 constituencies in in Great Britain and found there were just three who thought that Brexit, as we'd done it, had been a good idea. Uh, Two of them were a bit neutral and the only one which was pro what had happened was was in Lincolnshire, which is that sort of very, very Brexity part. Right across the rest of the country, people are turning away from Brexit. And yet the Prime Minister has to keep talking about it to keep his backbenchers happy. That's a real problem for him. But I, so I don't think, on balance, that we're going to see the fall of Rishi Sunak anytime soon. I don't think we're going to see a successful challenge. And I don't think Boris Johnson is going to come back into Downing Street. But on the basis of this conversation, I do think it's becoming more and more likely that Rishi Sunak might be persuaded, for one reason or another, to bring him back into the fold, possibly possibly as party chairman. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hold up. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask ask us. Us. On today's episode, we have a question from an anonymous listener. They ask, is it just coincidence that a poor IMF forecast for the UK arrives on the anniversary of Brexit? So it's not just the 100-day anniversary of Rishi Sunak's premiership. It's also the three-year anniversary of Brexit yesterday. And the IMF found that while the prospects for every other leading developed nation had improved or remained unchanged since October, the UK has a gloomier outlook. So how much does this actually have to do with Brexit? Well, there are two questions there. Is it a coincidence Yes, it's a coincidence. Is it a useful journalistic coincidence? (laughs) That too, because I was talking to Michel Barnier this week, who's obviously negotiated from the EU side the Brexit deal, because we're not only the worst performer, we're actually the only one to actually shrink in 2023. Our economy is going to get smaller this year, and that it makes us unique in the developed world. And I said to Barnier, is this because of Brexit? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, but uh, Brexit has made it worse. He said, the problems you have got are structural problems inside the British economy. I agree with that. But Brexit has made it worse. And I agree with that, too. And I do think probably the most important thing about this is perception, isn't it? Whether it's perceived to have been a success or not. We had a piece by the pollster Joe Twyman on the website yesterday, which all of our listeners should check out. He found that only one in 20 Brits could name a specific way in which they had personally benefit from Brexit. And actually, there wasn't much difference between leave voters saying that and the average. And the main benefits that they could name were taking back control, which is quite a vague thing. It was obviously the slogan and the vaccine rollout as well. And the sort of there are some questions over how much Brexit contributed to the success of that programme anyway. People are perceiving that it didn't work. That sort of creates problems for the government, even if, as Michelle Barnier said, it's not the main cause of the economic problems that we're witnessing. Yeah, and I think this debate will go on. Brexiteers will say it doesn't matter what sort of Brexit we have. The point is, and the principle that we've left the EU, that we can now make our own laws. Um, So they almost sort of remove themselves from the debate about whether the consequences have been good and bad and look at the democratic or sovereign issues that underpinned the vote for many. I think also if we're looking at debates, you're going to see it keep coming uh, in terms of the vaccine role. As you mentioned, Boris Johnson this week was talking again about how Brexit actually saved lives. So I don't think we're going to be able to depart and just move on to a purely economic debate about whether Brexit was good or bad. These other issues are going to keep coming to the fore. And it was always really a state of mind, really, wasn't it? It was a state of mind at the relaunch of one of the main Eurosceptic groups this week. John Redwood said that he was very, very proud of Brexit. He was very, very proud that the British Parliament had taken back control. But he was not very proud of how the British government had acted since when it came to tax and spend and all the rest of it. And he said, come on, government, come on, Parliament, get on with it. And I think that's very much the mood amongst the Brexiters. So it does feed into the economic argument as well. Yes. And you mentioned the Northern Ireland Protocol in the first half of the podcast. There's supposed to have been some warming of of negotiations there. 
that I think is why so many people on the the hardcore Brexit side are so neuralgic, irritable, and worried at the moment because the the mood music from Brussels, London, and Belfast and Dublin as well is that things are moving fast towards some kind of resolution. We are seeing Rishi Sunak more or less now heading to Washington with a, with a team of people. And he would not be going there. He wouldn't be going to talk to President Biden if something big wasn't happening. What do we think it is? Well, we don't really know. And that's the problem. We're going to get the ERG in Parliament going through every single line of that agreement and finding something that go against the sort of Brexit that they want. Mm. The DUP is going to do the exact same thing. Mm. So either, as Andrew mentioned in the first half, you, you very much annoy Sinn Féin, you very much annoy the DUP, you very much annoy the EU or you very much annoy the ERG, that, that's the bind the government's in at the moment. And I think they will be able to cast it as a success, a victory, a move forward on Brexit. But whether they can actually get that through and they can bring all those parties together and, keyly, get the Northern Ireland executive back up and running is a different question. Well, that's the thing. I don't understand how you can ever get the executive back up and running if there's going to be a role for the European Court of Justice, which surely the EU will always insist must yeah. police their no, single market. I would predict the deal is not going to be either that Britain takes back complete control and banishes the the European court from Northern Ireland, nor is it going to be a new hard border in Ireland or anything like that. I think that the government's idea for two lanes, a so-called red lane and a green lane, they've done quite a detailed and very important agreement on data sharing. Because if everybody understands the data and knows which products are going purely into Northern Ireland, then you don't have to have nearly so many checks. And I think the idea is to, as it were, start to erase these issues with, like, like with a little rubber so you can barely see them. So the checks are still there. There are little sheds, but nobody notices them. And, and the subject becomes so obscure that it's kind of put to sleep, which is probably the best attempt to do this. But I don't think it's going to work. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, my colleagues, Andrew Marr and Freddie Hayward. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to follow and subscribe and leave us a nice review. And before you go, I just wanted to tell you about a journalism masterclass I'm doing for the Cambridge Literary Festival in partnership with The New Statesman. If you've ever wondered about getting into journalism, honing your existing journalistic skills, or what on earth people like me do all day, join me for a live and interactive two-hour online session on Saturday the 11th of February at 10am. If you're interested, go to the Cambridge Literary Festival website at cambridgeliteraryfestival.com. Tickets are on sale now until Friday the 10th of February. But hurry, there's only a limited number left.